of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 34, November 2020. It's all Greek to me. A conversation with Rush Rem. Hi, Paul Meyer here. Welcome. I've just finished up my Zoom master classes for October. Well attended and met a lot of very nice people. I did the Art of Voiceover, Dialects of the British Isles and Ireland, and The Secrets of Great Shakespeare Performance. I start acting in foreign language accents and working with accent modification clients this week. I've settled into a structure of four 90-minute sessions for each masterclass. Seems to be working very nicely. So just email me at paul at paulmeyer.com if you want to be on the mailing list for further announcements of these masterclasses. Thanks for all the emails. I've heard from a lot of people who really enjoy Guess That Accent. So let's continue that show opener for a little while longer. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. I used to say, our bird has got eyes like pearls and skin like alabaster. <laughs> and uh, then uh, I said, well, when her, her, he'd come home with this future daughter-in-law, this Bert, they said to her one day, What's her like? What's your future daughter and all good like? Her isn't much to look at, but I've got a beautiful set of teeth. Now, last time I told you at the outset it was in England, or from England, but I challenged you to say what part of England. If you guessed Devonshire, congratulations. It was Ideas England 31. I recorded it myself on a dialect gathering trip there many years ago. The subject was born and raised in Appledore in North Devon. Beautiful place, a historic fishing and shipbuilding port. To hear the whole recording, just search for England 31 at dialectarchive.com. An extended narrative from the same subject also occurs as Devon History, parts one and two in the Oral Histories collection. You can find that under the Special Collections tab on the menu bar. Now, Here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? I've always wanted to be a nurse. Well, not really. I wanted to be a, a pediatrician. And I was like, well, maybe that's too many years of school. So downgrade to being like a neonatal nurse because I love babies. I think they're like God's gift to every person who can have a kid. Kids are beautiful. Get the answer next time on In a Manner of Speaking. My guest this month is Professor Rush Rem. His last name is R-E-H-M, Rem, who holds a joint appointment in theatre and classics at Stanford University. For more information about him, see the webpage on paulmeyer.com devoted to this month's podcast. Rush, thanks so much for uh, joining me today on In a Manner of Speaking. I'm old enough to... Uh, have had Latin required of me in my English schoolboy grammar school days in the late 50s, and I'm very grateful. Uh, but I'm not old enough for Greek to have been required. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure when Greek was discontinued as a sort of requisite topic for, for schoolboys in England, but uh, that, it makes me sad that I didn't study Greek. And I thought we'd just start with us, my asking you, um, I wonder what the status of those seminal languages is now and what the mission of classics departments is these days? Well, that's a good question, topical, timely. Uh, the state of play with uh, teaching of ancient Greek, I think, is that very few schools offer it. Uh, some private schools, I think, do. Uh, but I don't think there's a public school in America. There might be one or two that even has the offering of ancient Greek. It's certainly mm -hmm. not required by anybody. In terms of classic departments, by the way, I should explain I'm in two departments, both classics yes. and theater, and I tend to be a little bit more in theater these days than classics. But um, it's quite common for students to start Greek uh, at university and not come in with anything from high school and, and, and major in classics. And that was certainly the case for me. I didn't actually start Greek until my second or third year at university, but I managed to extend my stay at university, so I got a pretty good... Uh, uh, grounding in ancient Greek and then went on and, and continued studying it. 
so that would be the case. In terms of the general uh, Florowood of classics now, there's an enormous in- interest in what they call classical civilization, often, but not always devoid of the language. So you'd actually sometimes you can major in classical civilization and only have one of the two languages and not mm-hmm. both the standard pr- practice in classical education. And the domination of English and Google Translate and all that has meant that the learning of foreign languages, which used to be necessary to read scholarship and classics, has fallen away. Mm-hmm. Um, so you needed to know German, French, sometimes Italian, um, and modern Greek, other things, but that seems to have, have gone by the wayside. Um, so it's, um, but it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's thriving, but it is hardly dead. And I think that it, it speaks to the lack of a better term, the, the eternal time, apparent, apparent eternal timelessness of the classics. Are Latin and Greek still top of the tree in classics departments? Oh, oh yes. Although you'll, 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 you know, there are departments that go back and, and, and do Sanskrit, you know, mm-hmm. uh, European roots. I was wondering about Sanskrit and Arabic and Mandarin. And well, in classics departments per se, uh, Arabic isn't usually taught. Uh, that would be usually in an in a Arab studies or language department. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting thing about classics, as you probably know, is that classics as a discipline is different from many others because it's quite normal in the classics department to have, for example, someone who does uh, ancient literature, someone who does epic, someone who does vase painting, someone who does archaeology, someone who does philosophy, and Mm -hmm. someone who does history. But in an English department, you'd get English literature, and English history would be taught in the history department. Mm. So classics as a discipline has always been just willy-nilly interdisciplinary. This whole notion that (laughs) all this cry for interdisciplinarity is, well, study the classics, because you, you you know it's a kind of cultural totality, including history, including philosophy, including linguistics, and poetics, and so forth. Good. Well, I did want to sort of set the ground, take the long view, uh, step back and look at the forest before we start zeroing in on the trees. Um, let's get a little closer to our topic, of course, which is the spoken word in ancient ancient Greece. So humans have been talking to each other for possibly as long as uh, two million years, uh, certainly for the last. 50,000 years, I, I've discovered that the estimates on human speech as, as an integral part of our species vary very widely. So clearly, long before the invention of writing systems, around 3400 BC, very late in human history, uh, clearly religious rites and storytelling were flourishing. Uh, and I was interested to know how you imagine the performance of these pre-literate ritual and stories and and their eventual transcription into, into written texts? Well, that's a, a big question. I'm hardly an expert on um, you know ancient rituals of which we have <laughs> very little record. Right. Um, uh, so clearly a lot of what we intuit from about pre-literate um, festivals, discussions, stories, whatever, come from what we have in terms of the literature. Yes. And that's true of, of indigenous societies where we've lost, um, you know, um, living uh, people to tell. We go back to missionary uh, accounts and different things mm-hmm. like that. So we are, we are in some important sense dependent on the written word to even think back, although we can think, you know, sort of in terms of common sense, what do human beings do? Uh, you know, how, how do they behave? What, you know, what are the visual records? What sort of material remains can tell us about, you know, different practices and so forth. Um, yeah, but I can talk a little bit, as, certainly uh, with, with a little more confidence about Homeric epic. Yes. Uh, I am of the school, uh, of, of which there, there are many, I'm, I'm talk, hardly unique to me, um, of the notion that Homeric poems were originally composed orally which means they were, how we want to put it, sung, invented, reshaped, re-performed without the aid of writing. Mm-hmm. It's extremely difficult to, to, to imagine because the Iliad and the Odyssey are, are long poems and wonderfully complex with very great deal of self-consciousness and interrelatedness uh, and complexity of, 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 of the sort we normally associate with writing. But we know because of various um, poetic realities of the poems that there's an, also an enormous amount of what, what they call formulaic repetition, which allowed a, a poet while he was creating the poem or recreating a poem to um, fall back on various metrical um, schemes that would, in a sense, to be simple-minded about it, allow him to think ahead while he was, in a sense, 
following through something formulaically. And these are obvious as simple ones of non-epithet formulas like swift-footed Achilles and things like that. Mm-hmm. Which, and then there are different, different links of those things. And, and, uh, you know, and they can expand or contract. And this also extends to the way in which larger segments of the Iliad and the Odyssey are constructed around what they call type scenes. This is very old Homeric scholarship, but I think it still applies. For example, there's arming scenes, and an arming scene could just be one line, you know, and then he donned his ox hide shield and, you know, Ajax went into battle. But that arming sequence could add on, and then he put on greaves, and then he put on this, and then he put on that, and then he, you know, finally. And the, the expansion of, um, in, in oral poetry, expansion is a, is a form of emphasis. So in a sense, the longer something takes uh, to, to recite, but the longer... Uh, something like, say, an arming sequence um, takes to recite, the more more there is in it, in a sense, the bigger, more important it is. Mm-hmm. And the extension of that is in the book 18 of the Iliad, where you have the uh, arms of Achilles being remade for Achilles because he gave his armor to Patroclus, Patroclus died, his armor was stripped from him. So Achilles needs a new set of armor, and Hephaestus makes it, and is you know, almost almost a book uh, about the arming, if you will, of Achilles. So you can see how these small units grow into larger and larger ones, but this is all part of a system that makes sense for oral composition. Mm-hmm. If you were writing, you would, wouldn't necessarily need to do it like that. I, I was going to say, I've always been fascinated by the, the tension between orality and literacy. And I just wondered what you thought we gained and what we've lost when a purely orally transmitted poem or tale or story eventually became written? What, what do we lose? What do we gain in that yeah. transition? Some people think that the new technology of writing transformed everything. It completely changed the way people thought. But some people make big, big claims for how the technology of writing transformed possibilities of poetry, the possibilities of human expression, the possibilities of thought. And all of a sudden you have this kind of logo-centric notion that is completely throwing out the ways people thought before. And I think that is crassly overstated. Mm-hmm. But but you certainly one thing you lose, say in the Homeric poems, and in part this was this was programmatic, is the inventiveness of the poet at the moment is limited once you have a standard canonical text that is the that, that is the poem. So if you go back to the days of the bards, some of them are mentioned in the Iliad and the Odyssey, Demodocus, and some others are actually talked about, the whole idea of a poet singing a a song in a sense extemporaneously, although clearly from a long tradition, these pop up a couple of times in the Iliad and the Odyssey. The assumption is that they will sing the the tale and they will say they sing it exactly as it was before, but it won't be like that because Mm -hmm. it will be what is in a sense called for at the moment and what their inventive powers and memory and creativity come up with. Once you have writing and you decide that this is the version of the poem you like or want, then that becomes canonical. And in a sense, it it both saves the poem because you have it, but it also changes the notion of what it is to have that thing because now it's a thing, right? Yes, it's, 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 no, nailed, no. it's nailed down. When once I'm, I'm often fond of thinking, we often talk this way in theater, don't we, that that balance between exact repetition and and in the moment inventiveness is is hugely important and uh, main, maintaining that sense of extemporaneousness even while reciting something word for word is 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 quite a challenge for the actor. Yeah, well, that's for sure. I mean, I mean that, that's a sort of a different problem of, of the in a sense of immediate response to the audience with a given rehearsed text. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and with different things happening on stage, I, I'm, I've acted as well. And I, I know exactly what you're talking about. In, in, one thing that's interesting, though, is this sort of um, recension or the idea that you take a text that is oral and you set it by writing it down. The one thing that it does do, and this is important, um, say, in the home competitions of, for Homer in the Panathenaic festivals in Athens, um, we're talking about sort of probably in somewhere around the middle of the sixth century. Um, was that the, the rhapsodes who are now now reciting Homer would only want to recite <laughs> the same <laughs> same parts? So uh, so they decided if we had a, if we had a text, then we would ask the rhapsodes, and this is probably some sort of lot, to pick up where the um, previous rhapsode sort of reciter of of, of epic had stopped. Mm-hmm. So you, it allows you a more uh, an understanding of sequence, right, in in the poem, and then. 
in the case of tragedy, um, because actors were interpolating, were just throwing in anything they wanted, uh, at a certain point, it, it kind of got out of hand because actors wanted to just expand on something and they didn't care what was written. And so they wanted to set a text so that we actually have a play of Euripides and not just a bunch of different performances of, of Euripides, some of which have very little to do with Euripides. <laughs> so the idea of writing also is a way of saving something. It's a neat tension. Let's get to the sound of it, because this is, this is uh, in a manner of speaking, and uh, I'm fascinating to be able to, in your company, time travel back to those days and, and get the sound of ancient Greece. So give us, give us a little something, maybe the Odyssey or the Iliad, a little, yeah, little if, taste. If okay, I'd like to read just a, a few lines of the Odyssey, and then for gender equality, if you may, uh, a little bit of a poem of Sappho. Oh, great. Um, so this is uh, from the opening of the Odyssey. It, it's uh, written in dactylic hexameter. Great. Here we go. Andra moyenepe musa polutropon hos malapola, plang the pe troi asia rom tole ethrone perse. Polon dantro poni den astia kai non egno. Pola dogen pon toi pathen algea hon katatumon. Arnumen nos hen te psu hen kai nos ton hetairon. So that's the first five lines of the Odyssey. Fantastic. Thank you so and much. A, mm. What a strong pulse. What a yeah. compelling onward rushing pulse it has. Well, that's a dactylic hexameter, uh, which is, you know, um, uh, basically a long, short, short, or stressed, unstressed, unstressed. Yes. Yes. Uh, but it's very, um, it's very, as you said, it's, uh, I guess you could call it epic. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be a good word for it. <laughs> yeah. So here's a, maybe a little bit of a, of a very different poem written around 100 years, well, written, composed 100 years later, although clearly written down by uh, the poet Sappho, who lived on the island of Lesos. And it's a, it's a lyrical uh, ode. Poikilo tron athaton Aphrodita, pai dios to loploke, lisomaise, me masaisi me doniaisi damna potnia tumon. Ala twidelt, hai potakata rota, tasemas audas, aiosa peloi, eclues, patros de domon lepoisa, crucion eltes. And I could go on, it's a beautiful poem. Uh, it's, a, it's a prayer to Aphrodite that she help her with uh, a lover that um, is ignoring her. Yeah, yeah. Sappho was a superstar, wasn't she? Well, um, we don't know very much about her, to be honest. Um, she wrote a lot. Uh, we know that, but we only have very little bits of it. I think this might be the only complete poem we have. I only read about And so there's a lot of speculation about her. And in fact, it's in this poem, there's just a one participle that's feminine that is the basis on which one assumes that Sappho was lesbian. It's clear the lover that she's trying to regain interest in with mm -hmm. the help of Aphrodite is a woman, but only from a feminine participle ending. Mm -hmm. And other poems, it's, it's unclear. Uh, mm -hmm. I, although I guess one could, you know, intuit that this may be the case. And Sappho was married and had a child. But the whole lesbian notion comes from this poem and some other images that, that would suggest sexual interest in women. She was a superstar, but we barely have anything of her. Of her yeah. work. Sure. Tantalizing. Uh, how sure can you be of your pronunciation? Uh, can, you, can you do for ancient Greek what historical linguists have done for early modern English, for example? Is the spelling of ancient Greek a reliable guide to its pronunciation? Or was it as hopeless a case as written English might be now? Yeah. Metrical evidence, wordplay evidence, puns, uh, was correct spelling in the Greek consciousness? Uh, we know it was a very late development in English. So how well can we recover the sound that we that could be heard around the Mediterranean? I think we cannot recover it with great confidence, but there are, as you suggested, and I'm not a, it's not my area of expertise by any means, but there are various ways that you can figure out how things were pronounced by looking at whatever you might know of some other word that is say picked up by another language that say example is a translation um, and from Latin, say, to Greek, there's some ways in which you can figure out how vowels must, must have been uh, uh, sound similar. There are, um, as you pointed out, metrical ways to do it. And there are onomatopoetic ways, you know. What does a sheep sound like? Well, if you're imitating it, then it would seem like it's not boo-boo, but closer to ba-ba or ba-ba. Yeah, right. So things like that. And there are, and there are highly uh, you know, sophisticated means of trying to 
determine this. At a certain point, I think it was about uh, 200 BC, uh, the uh, Alexandrians, who had a lot to do with saving of, of these ancient texts, would introduce accent marks to help understand the pronunciation. And there's some suggestion from them, and the suggestion is acute, might have been, this might have been related to, to pitch. So some people think that the Greek or ancient Greek was pitch accented, like a bit more, mm-hmm. like, if you will, like Chinese. So, for example, you have a, a Greek word like um, Theodoros, you know, a, a, a Theodore, a gift of God. And it, but if you accent it, it could be Theodoros, <laughs> or we would say Theodoros, but Theodoros would make it more like a song because of the accent of pitch. Mm-hmm. So there's some suggestion that the uh, acute accent meant a raise in pitch and the grave meant the lower in pitch and the circumference meant a rise in the lowering in the in the in these all of course uh, you know over vowels. So there's some thought about that, uh, and at some point uh, a Greek lost its pitch accent and, and and went for stress accents like we have. Although, as you know, you're probably much more knowledgeable about this than I am. Sometimes stress accents also involve the change in pitch. You just don't make it louder, but you change the pitch of it. Duration, amplitude, and uh... Yeah. And pitch, the three dynamics that would set one syllable apart from another. Right, right. And then, uh, you know, and also there's ways of telling from when or, or vowels are alighted, uh, the, the way in which um, uh, diphthongs are pronounced. You can you can make some some determinations on that. Many vowel sounds in ancient Greek were pronounced or diphthongs were pronounced differently. But in modern Greek, for example, because I, I know a little bit of modern Greek, I mean, there are, I think, six or seven vowel combinations that are all pronounced E. <laughs> but mm. in ancient Greek, it would have been a I, oi, e, u. <laughs> uh, so uh, there's a, a, a process by which, at least in modern Greek, these things lost their differentiation. And and, um, and, 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 and there, the spelling then is no longer helpful in pronunciation. Mm. You have to, in a sense, forget how they're spelled in, in, uh, in modern Greek and assume, oh, I see, these are all said the same way. Whereas in ancient Greek assumptions, you wouldn't have spelled them differently if they weren't so, spoken differently. Yeah. Was there, in fact, a, a standard spelling, a correct spelling in the Greek consciousness? There are different, and again, I'm no expert on this, but there are different dialects that come out of um, uh, that ancient Greek speakers and eventually writers. I came across a fantastic map just recently when I was getting ready for this. You know, I had no idea that there were you know, 10 or 12 different dialect regions, right? What I know about it is, 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 is a little more simplified than that. I'm happy. I'm happy to say, <laughs> but to go, just go back quickly. So, it was, it was some Indo-European language, uh, you know, how uh, it moved into Greece is hard to know. There might have been some indigenous languages spoken in in Greece by other inhabitants. It's a question of movements of people. It's difficult to, to know, yes. but uh, it, it's fairly clear that we, we had some version of spoken Greek in the Mycenaean period, roughly 1600 to 1150, something like that. And there are written forms of that language called Linear B that don't look like Greek at all, are not from the Phoenician alphabet. And it took a long time for someone, uh, Michael Ventris and John Chadwick, to translate these. They are uh, uh, syllabaries. So they're, instead of we have, say, 24, 26 letters in an alphabet, there were something like 88 combinations of consonants and what we would call vowels together. And that constituted, quote, their alphabet. So they didn't have an alphabet, but you have. So, you know, ba, ba, boo, ba would be uh, all different symbols, right? There wouldn't be mm-hmm. a combination of a B and an A or something like that. So right. Finally figured that out. They figured that out by mapping this linear B, which nobody could read, onto place names in Greece. And then they found, I mean, just a code-breaking sort of thing, managed to actually be able to more or less decipher linear B. Well, that tells us that the ancient Greeks uh, from about 1600 on or 1500 on, at least in places where Mycenaean uh, ruled, uh, were, were Greek speakers. And then from there, you have remnant elements, say, going back to the earliest literature we've got, which is basically Homer, of a series of dialects that obviously descended in some way we don't know from uh, Mycenaean Greek. Mm-hmm. And they are our Cato Cypriot, which was spoken in uh, Cyprus and then in sort of central part of isolated part of the mountain region in the Peloponnese. Mm-hmm. You have Aeolic, which is the language of Sappho uh, from Lesbos and the northern part of what's now Turkey used to be Magna Graeca. And then you, you have um, Doric, which is the major part of the Peloponnese, and there's also a different kind of Doric in the northwest. And then you have Ionic or Attic Greek, I mean, uh, which is eventually what what won, if you want, over the Greek world. And finally, that when after the Alexander the Great and the Hellenization of much of the of, of the Middle East, 
it was that Greek that was spread and it, it was called Koine, common, common language. And that is the Greek of say, eventually uh, some small changes uh, in the New Testament. So these are all different ways in which the dialects of, uh, of Greece were represented. And it's interesting, I think, that they often ended up being associated with different genres. So take, for example, the Odyssey that I read is not actually a language that was probably spoken, but a kind of poetic language that combined some remnants of Arcado-Cyprian and Aeolic and Ionic. The Sapphic poem, Sappho's poem, is in Aeolic Greek, okay? And then uh, Greek tragedy is in Ionic Greek. So all of these things are separate, and they all had slightly different ways of spelling. (laughs) That's where I was getting at the spelling of the thing. And that's how we know their dialects, because similar words are spelled differently or have different endings or different uh, initial vowels. So the question of the spelling of these things depends on what dialect you are in, if you will. But eventually, these became more or less systematized uh, when, uh, when people were interested in, particularly the grammarians in Alexandria and other places were interested in saving these texts with since the uh, initial performance context of many of them, like Sappho's poems, were, were certainly meant to be be sung. They weren't meant to be, uh, uh, were not meant to be read. Yes. Am I recalling this at all accurately that the chorus and the, the solo performers were written sometimes in different dialects? Yeah. It, it, let's go to Greek tragedy, which I know a bit more about than all the rest of this. Yes. There are basically two different modes of performance in tragedy, if I can say it like that. One of them we are quite more or less accustomed to, which is what, what let's just call it speech. Ancient Greeks might have called it um, the rhetoric, but, but the speech, which was close to normal speech. Yes. Um, and uh, it's in um, uh, iams, like Shakespeare's iambic pentameter, but the, for the uh, Greek tragedy in particular, right? it was called iambic uh, trimeter. So that's normal speech, if you will, and that's the speech of, say, Medea or Agamemnon or Clytemnestra or so forth. Then, as you well know, there's another mode of uh, expression in Greek tragedy, and that's the chorus. It's often called lyric, but that's slightly a misnomer because lyric implies it was accompanied by the lyre. But in Greek tragedy, it was not accompanied by a lyre at all. It was accompanied by a, something that sort of sounds like a clarinet called an aulos. So this, these were sung and danced sections of the play, and their basic dialect is not Ionic, but Doric. Mm-hmm. Okay? And you can tell this because of a substitution for, for alpha, for an eta, and things like that. So back to spelling. So because it's spelled differently, you think, oh my goodness, why is it spelled Dorically? Well, okay, this must be the Doric influence part of, of tragedy. And these two modes and these two different, if you will, dialects were brought together in tragedy, and one of the great things about Greek tragedy is that it managed to bring in all sorts of different poetic influences, influences of song and influences of performance context and speeches like you would find from an orator or a politician, someone in law courts, and all these things merge in tragedy. So tragedy in, in that sense is a kind of like, like theater itself, I'd say, a, a bastard art. It's not pure. And tragedy is what's great about it. And I think finally, finally, why eventually it became Panhellenic. I don't think it was as Panhellenic as some people think early on. I think it was Athenian. It brought together various elements of song and spoken culture that had not been put together in the same place to tell these great mythic stories. Great. We could spend all day talking about this next question. I just, just would like you to address it very briefly. Comparing... Yeah the status or importance of the spoken word in, in say, the Athenian 5th century culture to its status and prestige today in our 21st century American culture? Wow. Well, to reiterate, or to go back to where we started, in in spite of what people say, uh, who don't know, most ancient civilizations uh, were were not literate. uh, And there were probably very, very few Athenians in the 5th century who could read or write. And it's sort of a myth that we have about how could oral cultures be so extraordinary? Yes. <laughs> well, uh, they can. <laughs> so <laughs> there it is. Now, now clearly, you know, people did write and some people did read, but the reason we know that it, that it, or at least we have a pretty good reason to think that they weren't, is there was no public education and literacy and writing is difficult, uh, you know, speaking is not. You, you learn that by growing up in a context where there are other speakers and you grow your language like Chomsky says, depending on what the external environment is, but you grow it from inside. It's an intuitive response. It's kind of grows like arms and legs. The output of your 
of speech is much, much greater than the input you got from learning it. it behaviorism doesn't work in terms of understanding how language develops. And that's natural. But writing and reading is a tertiary phenomenon that comes later and has to be taught. Yes. Uh, it's not natural, if you will, to write. You have to learn it. It is natural, if you will, to, to grow language by speech yes. or some other form of non-written communication. So it was important in every aspect of Athenian life. And we have, you know, philosophical schools where the peripatetics would walk and talk. Okay. Philosophy came out of talking and walking at least yes. some schools did. Obviously some people wrote things down and thank God they did. Otherwise we wouldn't have them. But even if you know, in, in Plato's dialogue, Socrates is very suspicious of the written word because he yes. says you can't interrogate it the way you can interrogate a speaker. You can actually ask questions and have a dialogue. Mm -hmm. uh, in the um, democratic processes in the in the assembly, or in the smaller versions of boule and um, language, rhetoric, speech was everything. And you get this, although it's written down, you get it in the in the speeches of Thucydides, where you hear the arguments and debates that ostensibly happened in the in the assembly. And clearly, for all the performances we've mentioned, the singing, uh, epic recitation, uh, tragedy, comedy, were all performances primarily, there's some indication even that uh, it's possibly the case that some actors and certainly some members of the chorus perhaps didn't, didn't read and mm -hmm. they would learn their parts orally, right? Someone would speak them or sing them and they would learn them like that. They and they must have had amazing memories, of course. Well, yes, but also if you think, you're absolutely right, Paul, but I think that part of our problem, you know, we are inundated with, with everything. We are so overloaded the Greeks didn't have that kind of sensory overload. Right. So I think they spoke uh, and heard and listened with a greater acuity because they weren't bombarded with everything at them all the time. I just think that makes some sense yes. um, uh, without romanticizing their world um, at all. So I, long and short is that the oral communication, for lack of a better term, oratory rhetoric were extremely important. Spoken word was essential. Yes. In the contemporary environment, as you know, it's used uh, a lot, but we talk talk about you know how we're visual culture and all sort of stuff, and we're inundated with images. That's quite true. Uh, language clearly still matters, but as we all know, um, it's usually the misuse of language that matters: um, uh, lies, deception, hypocrisy, advertisements, repetition of you know just the same old message of yes. often designed to obfuscate. And that's that's just a, a sad but real phenomenon. As you know, we're just inundated with noise. Uh, you performed in ancient Greek theaters. You did so this summer, presumably, right? No, um, there was some hope of doing something, but the COVID thing stopped everything. Mm, of course. But you have performed in ancient Greek theaters. I have performed outdoors in th theaters that are like ancient Greek theaters, yes. I've so, never performed at Epidavros or Herodos Atticus. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> I, was, I was hoping you'd have first-hand experience of... Well, I think you know where I'm going with this next question. It's open to the sky, seating many, many thousands of people. And um, from your experience, what are the secrets to a single, unamplified human voice being well, able to be heard with clarity by an audience of thousands? That's, yeah. that's so... You know, you, you've been in meetings in university like I have where there's a, a group of 15 people in a small room and they hand a microphone around to each other. It just oh, appalls me. Yeah. So what's the answer? Well, there, 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 I guess there are many. First, I mean, let's talk about public speaking areas. There were, of course, sort of ad hoc ones, like in the, in the Agora, the marketplace. There was, as far as I know, well, at least in the 5th, 4th century, there wasn't a particular place that was designed like Hyde, Hyde Park Corner or something. But people mm -hmm. spoke and people gathered and they listened. And then there's obviously issues of projection and vocal clarity and so forth were important. And clearly that was key to any sort of public life in Greece. And we, we learned this from Demosthenes, who from the life of, of, of Plutarch's lives, it talks about how he had a speech impediment, probably this thing, rhoticism, where, you know, you say L's for R's and vice mm -hmm. versa. And you can learn, again, this is Plutarch writing a bit later, but some evidence suggests he wasn't inventing this, that Demosthenes, you know, trained his voice. He would walk along the seashore and talk. He would talk with pebbles in his mouth. He would try to get, you know, vocal clarity, by overcoming impediments and you can you know, train yourself. So clearly vocal training in that sense was incredibly important, but also you should know that it's, it's interesting, but they say the theater of Dionysus in Athens, where um, say Euripides, Sophocles and Aeschylus plays and Aristophanes comedies were performed in the fifth century did not have 
um, and I'm fairly confident of this, did not have a big stone back wall, you know, like a, a skene, yeah, without a back wall. So it meant that that acoustics were not particularly good in that theater mm-hmm. uh, at all, really. And so, so what does that tell you? Well, if you read the tragedies, you can you can figure out there's all sorts of ways in which the tragedian. This is, I think, an important point. How, if you want to understand a form, you have to understand where it was performed, where it was was originally intended, and that might explain th- some things that look odd to us. So, for example, if a person is coming on stage and they have to come in from a distance because it's an outdoor theater and they don't just pop out from the wings, there's usually an announcement. Oh, here comes so-and-so from such-and-such. I wonder if he has anything important to say. We will listen with bated breath. The time of his stage crossing is covered by dialogue. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and and so anybody knows since the guy's wearing a mask, you don't know who he is, and he doesn't say, hello, I am so-and-so. This allows you to know that, you know, that so-and-so is uh, who that person is. And then it's quite clear that, that in any, as far as I can gather, in any Greek tragedy in the fifth century, you rarely, if ever, spoke to the other person on stage, you always spoke out to the audience. Because if you turn your head or if you turn your head upstage in the Mm -hmm. theater of Dionysus, you would not be heard. There was no bouncing the sound off. That's what I'm saying. There was no back wall to bounce your voice off of. Later, of course, that changed with moment theaters and so forth. And then there's, you know, kind of echo or, you know, a reflection of the voice. So it, it, and that explains also why so, I mean, if you think about it, why so many Greek tragedies are actually relatively, relatively speaking, little dialogue in lots of longer speeches. So someone says, Tell us about so-and-so and you get a 60-line speech, which you would never get in a contemporary realistic drama, very rarely right. anyway. And then when there's dialogue, it followed a very strict pattern called stichomythia. I mean, there were some variations in it, but you would say a line and then your interlocutor would say a line. And so you would know, for example, who was speaking <laughs> and frequently a word that at the end of one line would be picked up in the answer. And this all helped the audience follow. Uh, if you will, the the argument or the dialogue and, and so forth and so on. So part of the answer as to how you make it work is you follow the form of the play, which in a sense tells you, and then all the things you, you, you already mentioned, you need to, or suggested, you need to train your voice, you need to speak out to the audience, uh, you can't lower your head, although if there was a reflective surface, it would have been the ground. Exactly, you can bounce it off the floor, bounce perhaps. It off the ground, but you don't turn your back. And if you were to look at your scene partner, it would be while not speaking, of course. Exactly right. That's exactly right. And then the fact that the actors wore masks um, also compounded the problem somewhat, may may have helped in other ways. It's hard to know what acoustic Mm -hmm. properties the masks have. That was actually actually one of my next questions about the the masks. So I I suppose the reasons that they were masked is, is, is fairly obvious, but I was interested in how you felt that helped or hindered they had in the city of Dionysia anyway, uh, which is the big festival where most of the plays that we have, most of the Greek tragedies and comedies we have were performed. They had something called the three actor rule. Yes. So three actors played all the parts. And then there was a chorus separate from the actors um, that um, 12 and then 15 people also masked uh, who sang and danced and occasionally spoke in the choruses. So the three actor rule means that, you know, a, an actor might play, say, 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 play like Antigone, one actor would have probably played Creon because he's on most of the time. Another actor would have played uh, Antigone. Another actor would have played Ismene. But the actor who played Ismene and the actor who played Antigone could also have played Hymon or the messenger or Eurydice or Tiresias. So the very fact that you have three actors playing multiple roles required some way to allow that. And certainly masks is one of them. Yes. Um, all the actors were male. So there weren't any females on stage. Um, this was actually also the case in Shakespeare's day, as you, as you know, and also some Japanese um, theater too. There's not, a, I would say, may, may not, maybe not be good, but it was not so uncommon in theatrical worlds for there to be no women for various reasons. So the men were playing women's parts and some extraordinary female parts, Clytemnestra, Antigone, Medea, I mean, you can go on and on. One of the great, greatest parts uh, with female characters were found in Greek tragedy, played by men. The question about whether they changed their voice, the suggestion I think probably is they did in some ways, they must have done. Uh, certainly, you know, you don't want a big, deep voice for, for a young, youngish girl like Antigone. But some people think that masks uh, were designed as sort of megaphones. And that, I think, has been more or less debunked. Yes. Um, it would be nice if that were true, because having been at several political rallies and you, you give a man a megaphone or a woman a megaphone and they are much more clearly 
you've worn these things yourself. Does it, does it in any sense muffle the voice? I've never done this myself. It, it, so. it, it, this is a, the problem, uh, Paul. It's a really good question. If the mask abuts very closely your mouth and lips, so it doesn't, in fact, cover them in any way, or there's no distance, so your mouth is... Like, like imagine the mask of your Lone Ranger, okay? The Lone Ranger's mask was over his eyes, if you remember right, the television right. show. It had no effect, as far as I can tell, on his sound, right? Right, right. Because his voice and nose were clear. But once you cover your nose and your mouth, and if there's even a little distance between the aperture of the mask and your mouth, the voice doesn't come directly out of the mask. It's going to do something inside the mask. It bounces well, around inside, some yes. People talking about acoustic resonances and so forth and so on. But you lose clarity with that. And I have trouble with masks. But you can learn how to do it. And they obviously did. And clearly they had no trouble because yes. there were there were acting prizes. Actors were you know lauded. I mentioned even earlier how actors eventually replaced the plays so much so that they had to limit what the actors did by actually insisting they play the play that was written and not whatever <laughs> the hell they wanted to, to say. And there's a gradual re- replacement. Speak the lies that are set down for you. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Exactly, exactly right. <laughs> so, you know, in the fourth century, um, actors were touring all over Greece with these plays and often simply doing great speeches or in a sense adding on their own thoughts to these speeches and expanding them and those actors interpolations what it's called and the actors became in some sense more stars than the plays and the plays became much more in, in my judgment entertainment and much less about important political social you know moral issues that i think uh, it was the roots of greek mm-hmm. tragedy in, in the in the athenian democracy let's touch on the controversial uh, echea am i pronouncing that right the sounding vases yeah, yeah. tell me about that well, um, I don't know much about it, but um, it, it something pops up in Vitruvius's books on e- expl- Explain it to our listeners, first of all, what the theory yeah, is. Yeah, well, it's, the idea is it's a kind of sounding vase or some sort of uh, chamber that you could bury or put somewhere that would uh, pick up and amplify a voice. So it's a kind of... In a particular um, harmonic overtone of some kind, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Sympathetic which, resonance. Okay. And as far as I can gather, there's been no archaeological evidence for these things. You would think there would be some material remains in theaters of these things uh, buried somewhere or referred to in some way. But as far as I can gather, the earliest reference to this, I may be wrong, but I think it's Vitruvius. He's a a Roman writer writing centuries after the Greek, uh, Greek Mm -hmm. theater, five, six centuries later. So um, it's not uh, I, I'm not. I'm not convinced by it, but there are, um, you know, obviously interesting um, acoustic um, experiments going on in ancient Greece. There were interest in circular buildings and what that might do. And there's a um, the tholos, which is a, one of the names for circular Greek building, either temple or something else. There's a tholos in, in Delphi, and there's a famous tholos in Epidauros where the big theater that everybody knows and the pictures of the theater in Epidaurus, people I think in America would say Epidaurus. Um, uh, well, there's a, a building, I think late fourth century, I'm not sure actually today, I should know that, I'm sorry, I don't. And it's some, uh, there's some evidence that there were some acoustic things going on there in the way it was built and there were underground chambers. So they were interested in this sort of thing, don't get me wrong. And then of course it's in the same site where you get this big theater where the acoustics in this the theater of Epidaurus are exceptional and everybody knows who've been there you know you can be in the center of the orchestra and speak and you could without yelling or anything you can be heard at the top which is far far away and this thing this theater i've seen many performances there seats 14 15,000 people so there uh, this is now late fourth century the acoustics are terrific but in fifth century Athens, uh, the theater of Dionysus, as far as I can gather, which was very jerry-rigged theater, it was not, you know, constructed in stone and all this stuff. Maybe they had some wooden bleachers and things like that, but it wasn't a big, beautiful stone theater. The demands were much, much greater on the act to, to be heard with clarity and sufficient volume. One last thing to say, and this is actually important when you think about staging. In the old days, people, when they were trying to figure out how a Greek tragedy was staged, they would always assume there was this, this raised stage in the back, Okay. Uh, you know, against the whatever the, the scene building was, which was temporarily constructed out of wood. And so you have, they may say, oh, maybe it's two feet high or three feet high, and you stick it way in the back, and there's no real back sounding wall. There's some sort of wooden thing back there, but it's not much. And of course, that's not a strong acting place in the theater. <laughs> the strongest acting place is the closer you get to the audience. <laughs> sure. 
So it doesn't make sense that you would stick everything in the back. And everybody, of course, what these people were writing about, it was maybe 50, 50, 40, 50 years ago, were thinking, oh, in the proscenium stage, it doesn't make much difference, right? Because you, you know, you're, you're enclosed. The sound is, you know, basically contained in a room. Mm-hmm. It's not going to fly up into the, into the heavens. But in the ancient theater, it wasn't like that. And that means, for example, when you have the suppliant plays or plays where, where there's an altar, you don't want to stick the altar in the back. <laughs> you know, which people used to do by some door, but you want to stick it in the middle of the orchestra, primary acting space, because it brings you closer to the audience. And that's just, you know, common sense. But a lot of times people who don't do theater and don't think about vocal projection issues and things like that, they apply contemporary theatrical practices backwards, which doesn't take account of all the many of the things I've talked about. Excellent. Excellent. Let's talk about chanting or sustaining of a sustained note. Obviously the, as you and I both know as theatre directors and actors, the enemy of clarity is those dreadful falling, dying tones at the end of a phrase. And when you're sustaining or chanting, you sustain and even perhaps lift it at the end. The modulation is kinder to intelligibility in the theatre. So so, uh, how do you think, do you think the chanting came first or, or, or was it a response to the larger and larger spaces or what we would hear would we hear something that we think of as chanted like a like a like an episcopalian liturgy yeah, yeah right so let's go back to um tragedy and the, the different modes um so in, in the rhetorical mode the speaking mode which is we talked about iambic trimeter aristotle says in the poetics it's the closest to normal speech so i am not of the school that suggests this is like song this is speech but it's rhythmic okay but it's not melodic. Right. And, and, it does, and, and it does invite sustained syllables too. Yes, it does. Particularly, for example, as you pointed out, at the end of the line, all, all the last two lines of iambic trimeter in a Greek tragedy in iambic trimeter are uh, spondaic. They're two longs or two heavies, if you want. Yes. Right. So it's not roi, but roi. <laughs> so if you, you know, you, you, you already are telling you at the end of the line, you don't drop. At least you don't drop emphasis. So the, so the meter encourages the actor to keep the voice lifted. Exactly to keep and 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 as we know, anybody's acted Shakespeare, you know the the rhythm of the line is in a sense the the, the motor of thought. So this, that's the speech. Then if you go to the choruses, there are very complicated lyrical, uh, sorry, very complicated metrical patterns that uh, are repeated from one one stanza to the to the next. Those things are sung in some form. We don't know the melody, although there's a little bit of a melody of, from a play of Orestes that's, that survived on some um, uh, uh, rock-cutting um, epi- epigraphical evidence that you can go online and hear how some people at Oxford have reconstructed to sing it uh, with, a, with an aulos as in the Greek. So you can, you can hear that. But it's, you get some sense of the sound of it. And that would be sung. But it would also, and this is the key, the, you know, the word chorus in Greek does not mean sung. It means dance. Like yes. choreography. Yes. So this stuff was moved too. So now you have a very complex notion of something that is, let us say, poetry accompanied by this aulos, this or diablos, a double, double sort of clarinet-like thing, mm-hmm. uh, which looks like a pipe, but actually has a reed in it, so it's not a, it's not a whistle, and movement and very complicated metrical patterns that are then repeated precisely, uh, fre- frequently in the, in the next uh, sort of anti-stanza. So that's sung, if you want to call it, sang, sung and dance. Then we have a third mode, which both either an actor or a chorus or both can join, uh, and that's called anapests. And that is the closest thing, Paul, as far as we can gather, to what might be, have been determined as chanted, because it, it, it's clearly not meant to be the speech of the actor, and it is not meant to be the full-blown sung dance thing of the chorus, if you will. And that probably would be chanted. There might have been a kind of monotonic thing to it. I don't know. How can, you give us, can you give us an example? Oh, God. I would have to find an anapestic passage. Look at this. But I think the opening chorus would be Agamemnon is Decaton menetos todepe priamu. That sounds pretty anapestic. <laughs> Sounds like a meter that would be impossible to evade. 
Yes, yes. And then sometimes they call them marching anatomists. So mm-hmm. they used it to march into the theater, to come into the theater. And then, then, then there's something called lyric anatomists, where you get this Doric alpha that tells you, okay, this is more chorally inflected than marching anatomists. And so I would say if, if, if I were doing, well, when I've done a Greek play and I wanted to follow these things, I would have sort of two modes, spoke, spoken and choral, and, and keep them distinct. And then when they're mixed or when, a, when an actor joins a chorus and actually sings, which some actors do, and uh, Cassandra and Agamemnon, um, many, many uh, uh, characters in, in Euripides, uh, females sing. So they enter the choral mode. Sometimes they're monodies. They sing by themselves. Sometimes they sing with the chorus. That's called a comos. And so then you have actors singing, right? And so they, and that's important. When they do that, it is important. Why are they singing? Why aren't they talking? And then you have this sort of middle ground, which I would call chanting of anapests. So I just want to reiterate, I don't believe that the closest parallel to Greek tragedy is opera because the, if you think about choruses in an opera or almost anything in an opera, uh, certainly in most, most operas I know, uh, the, 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 the strength of the, of the story is not in the uh, poetic, poetic nature of the language or its complexity. They often repeat and repeat the same thing. Oh, I love you. I love you. Oh, I love you. No, no, I really love you. I love you. I love you. Yeah. I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm dying. Yeah, 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 totally. I mean, and it's wonderful. Don't get me wrong. Opera's fantastic. I love it. But yeah. it's the, it's primarily musical. Yes. And Greek tragedy is not, in spite of what people want to say, primarily musical, although it came out of a song culture and a performance culture. It's primarily performative or performance oriented, that is for sure. And it has a very important musical element, but that musical element does not dominate. Got it. I just. Uh, important word, point. Word, spoken word, if I can say it, spoken word, sung word, but let's keep going back to word, mm. dominates. Yeah. Exactly right. Rush, this has been great, but I want to close with another little performance. Choose, choose something. And let's end with the sound of ancient Greek in our ears. Um, okay, so maybe I can just read you the opening of, um, of Electra of Euripides, because I've been working a little bit on that play. So this is actually spoken by a character a peculiar in Greek tragedy, not a hero at all, but a, but a peasant farmer. You're good old Euripides, throw a curve at us. So this is an iambic uh, trimeter. O geis pelas gon armos inachuroi, o ten potaras nausi hiliaisarei, Es gain eplause, Troy Araga, Memnon Wanax, Tenas de ton cratunt en idiae xoni, Priamon helon te dardanu clenen polin, Aficetes todargos hupselon de pi, etc. Rush Rem, thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Professor Rush. Rem. Don't forget to follow Paul My Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. My guest in December will be Patrick Feaster, an expert in the very earliest recordings of the human voice. He promises a very, very early recording from the dawn of the technology that hasn't been made public before. Next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>